Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome here to the John F. Kennedy Jr. Forum. My name is David Elwood. I'm the dear, dean here at the Harvard Kennedy School, and I'm especially pleased to welcome you here for this event and for the uh, Black Policy Conference. This is the ninth annual uh, Black Policy Conference. Um, now, I know you've uh, already had a full day, and there's a lot going on tomorrow, especially, and uh, I think it's a, a terrifically exciting time. The fact that you're here on a beautiful, lovely, warm day on Friday afternoon speaks, uh, speaks a great deal, but especially, uh, I'm thrilled to welcome our, our very special guest, uh, Congressman Elijah Cummings. Um, before doing that, I want to say a little bit about the Black Policy Conference, for those of you that don't know about it. For the mission, it's uh, got a fourfold mission. It's first to seek, uh, it seeks to enrich the dialogue at Harvard University beyond uh, and beyond about the issues facing communities within the African diaspora. Secondly, it seeks to build up, uh, to build a sustainable network of current students, alumni, faculty, and policy practitioners. Thirdly, to create innovative ideas and share the very best practices uh, addressing policy issues that affect Africa and the African diaspora. And lastly, to inspire individuals to be engaged in the policymaking process. As someone who himself was engaged in welfare reform during the Clinton administration and many other things, I cannot tell you how important this kind of work is when we think about the future uh, of, of not only the African American community, but our nation and our world. Uh, so much of the future is going to be written uh, on these kinds of things. And this year's conference theme really does capture to me that very sense. Uh, the, and it's the title, as you know, is The Fierce Urgency of Now, uh, Defining the Challenge and Directing the Future, commemorating the 50th anniversary of Dr. Martin Luther King's uh, momentous speech. Um, and so the speakers and panels and so forth should be terrific. And um, it's, it's all the more critical that these issues be brought forward uh, at this moment in history when the challenges feel so great. And yet, the opportunities seem at least plausibly here. I also want to thank the co-organizers, uh, the various organizers, co-chairs Jonathan McMaster and Marissa Davis, uh, as well as vice chairs Dolores Wilson and uh, Philip Olai. Um, I really do commend them for the hard work, and it looks like a terrific program this year and so forth. So now I get to, in fact, uh, introduce Jonathan McMaster, who's one of the conference co-chairs. He's a master in public policy candidate here at the Harvard Kennedy School, um, concentrating in business and government. At the Kennedy School, he serves as president of the Black Student Union and co-chair of the fundraising and keynotes for the Black Policy Conference. Some of you have been called by him, no doubt. Um, last summer, though, he worked in uh, the Public Affairs Division of the U.S. Embassy in Seoul, South Korea. Uh, during the summer of 2011, he worked as a political advisor, U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, Susan Rice, uh, in New York. And he, in 2010, received the Thomas R. Pickering Foreign Affairs Fellowship and will serve as a U.S. Foreign Service Officer upon graduating from the Kennedy School. This is a remarkable honor, uh, and indeed, uh, congratulations for all this. Um, he graduated from Stanford University in 2011 with a B.A. in Political Science, a minor in Languages, Arabic and French. Um, ladies and gentlemen, Jonathan McMaster. On behalf of the Black Student Union, I would like to welcome you all to the ninth annual Black Policy Conference. The Black Policy Conference mission is to realize innovative solutions to problems that are inherent and which persist within the African and African American communities. 
This year's conference, The Fierce Urgency of Now, Defining the Challenge and Directing the Future, hopes to commemorate the 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. In fact, yesterday, April 4th, marked the 45th anniversary of Dr. King's tragic death. I'd like to thank the Institute of Politics for organizing this event, and also I'd like to thank Congressman Cummings, my congressman, uh, for coming and speaking at this event. I'd like to remind also conference participants that we'll have a reception immediately following this in the Hip Hop Archives at the W.E.B. Du Bois Institute at 104 Mount Auburn Street. Finally, I'd like to thank the Black Student Union, the Black Policy Conference staff. I'd like to thank the alumni who have, who have come all the way from various parts across the, across the world and across the country for coming today our contributors, and lastly, all of you for joining us here as we hope and work to define the challenges and to direct the future. Thank you very much, and I'll turn it back over to Dean Elwood. Thank you, Jonathan. It's uh, now my pleasure to introduce Congressman Elijah Cummings. Uh, one of the great challenges of our time is to find people uh, who are exceptional public leaders. It's the goal of this school, to help educate uh, exceptional public leaders. But you'd be very hard-pressed to find someone who combines the quality of Elijah Cummings and very, he'd be a terrific role model for any one of us. For it's a remarkable combination of dedication, of understanding, of compassion, um, yet hard-headedness, uh, wisdom, all combined in one individual who carries great, great integrity uh, in everything he does and everything he tries to do. Um, he'll tell you more, a little bit more about his uh, biography, so I'm not going to go too far there, except to mention the, the obvious highlights of a career. Um, he joined the Maryland uh, House of Delegates and served his 14 years and became the first African-American in Maryland history to be named Speaker Pro Tem. In 1996, uh, Congressman Cummings, uh, since 1996, he's proudly represented Maryland's 7th Congressional District in the House of Representatives. Um, he has a phrase that he uses frequently that I really quite love. Um, and, you know, a Congressman, with good phrases, people basically credit you the first time or two, and then they own it themselves. Uh, but you often say, our children are the living messages that we send to a future we will never see. Um, the messages right now are pretty gray, uh, pretty ambiguous, and I think we have a lot to think about in terms of what the future can hold. On the other hand, I think there's real opportunity. He isn't committed to ensuring the next generation has access to quality health care, to education, clean air and water, and a strong economy, um, and, uh, and a fiscally responsible uh, one. He serves as the ranking member of the Committee on Oversight and Government Reform, so he's a particularly welcome speaker here at the Kennedy School. Um, in addition, uh, he uh, is the ranking, but as the ranking member, um, he fights to not only hold the Congress to a high set of standards and the like, he's also the President's administration and making sure that excellence uh, and efficiency are a central part of everything uh, that happens. Uh, he's consistently been an advocate for the rights of uh, this, the huge numbers of folks facing foreclosure uh, and uh, holds regular flow, I'm sorry, foreclosure prevention seminars for people at risk of being uh, foreclosed upon. He's got a bachelor's degree in political science from Howard University as well as a law degree from the University of Maryland Law, law School. 
Uh, he's got seven honorary degrees from universities throughout the nation. It's my very, very great honor. And please join me in welcoming Congressman Elijah Cummings. Thank you very much. To, I want to thank you, Dean Elwood, for, first of all, for your leadership. And I want to then thank you, too, for your very kind words to my constituent, Jonathan McAllister, and to all the other co-chairs. I want to thank you for what you are doing. And I want to let you know that I am humbled by your invitation. I often say to audiences, um, you know, people always come up to me and say, Congressman, I'm just so glad you were able to come and to appear. I tell them that when I think about from whence I've come, the son of two former sharecroppers with only a second grade education each, and for someone, anyone, to want to hear what I have to say is humbling. And I really mean that. It is a testament that is my rise from a child in special ed to basically the lawyer for the president of the United States of America. It could only happen in America. Only in America. And so I am indeed humbled and very, very, very proud to, to be here at Harvard. I'm uh, extremely uh, proud of my family's heritage as African Americans. And few here could doubt that this heritage has had a profound impact on my life. A little bit earlier, I was talking to Jonathan about politics and how I make decisions. And I was telling him that a lot of my actions, most of them, are born out of certain principles that have come from pain, that led to passion, that led to purpose. That being in elected office is something bigger than me. It just so happens that I have been chosen for this moment, for this time, to do this thing, to make a difference for so many, many people. And so here we are gathered at Harvard, 50 years after Dr. Martin Luther King gave his famous I Have a Dream speech at the Lincoln Memorial. And he spoke to several hundred thousand Americans of every racial identity, and faith tradition, and to tens of millions more who listened to him and watched his remarks at home. The 1963 March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, at which he spoke, was a shared assertion of American ideals. His prophetic challenge was advanced on behalf of a broad, multiracial coalition, a coalition of working people, union members, faith leaders, and intellectuals who are demanding a fundamental change in the status quo of that era. 
the broad expansion and universal opportunity that Dr. King addressed in his remarks was a challenge and a goal for everyone, not simply for those of us who were African American. I remind you of these historical facts because of their relevance to the challenges and political opportunities of our own time 50 years later here in 2013. Now as then, Americans in tens of millions are struggling to survive economically. Every year, now as then, tens of thousands of our countrymen and women are dying and suffering before their time. Now as then, all sorts of conniving methods are being utilized in well-financed attempts to deny the uplifting power of universal suffrage. And let me pause there to say this is unpatriotic, it is unfair, and it's certainly not democratic when you try to take anybody's right to vote away from them. And I, I am so glad that people stood up for hours upon hours and said, you will not take my vote away. You will not do it. And so we are like back then when Dr. King spoke in some very, very difficult times. My friends, the civil rights movement of the 21st century is not just about lifting up black people anymore. No. In 2013, our movement is about all of us and the generations of Americans yet unborn and making sure, making sure that we preserve the democracy we inherited when we came upon this earth. We need to put that in the DNA of every cell of our brains. A lot of people take so much for granted. I never thought that I would see the efforts that have been made to stop people from voting. I didn't. And I've been studying political science for over 40 years. My wife has a PhD in political science. And we never thought we would see the efforts. And can I just tell you something? What's interesting is that a lot of people are saying, well, boys will be boys. The problem is, is that when the boys are being boys, people are denied their rights. And when they're denied their rights, they're denied their opportunities to pursue life, liberty, and property and the pursuit of happiness. They're denied it. And so as I talked about the little boy named Elijah, son of two former sharecroppers, second grade education, coming to Baltimore in the early 1940s from Manning, South Carolina, so that their children could get a better education. Ladies and gentlemen, what I worry about is whether the little Elijahs that are coming up now will have the same opportunities that I have, that I've had. That's what concerns me. And so somebody asked me a question a little bit earlier during an interview here a few minutes ago. They said, Congressman, 
we ask this question of everybody that comes to Harvard. I said, what would you say to young people about going into politics? What would you say? I said, first of all, I would not ask them to go into politics. I would beg them to. Asking is too cheap. Tired of people sitting around looking at politics as if it's some game that they should not be involved in, allowing their lives to be dictated, oh God, by people who don't understand them and in many instances have no connection with them and have no sensitivity to their concerns. Send me, send me somebody who understands what it is to struggle. Send me somebody who can identify with that lady who all she has is her social security check and her Medicare. Send me somebody who understands that she doesn't have a pension because the pensions have gone. They understand she doesn't have a savings because when the recession came, it took all of that away. Who understands that she has worked over and over and over hard all her life and damn it, it's not an entitlement. It is social insurance. Send me somebody who has the brilliance of a Harvard education, common sense, compassion, Empathy, I'll take them anytime. They can replace me. <laughs> because that is what we need in a society. When I have to go to my staff and say to my staff member who's making $45,000 a year, I'm sorry, you've got to take some furlough days. I'm sorry that your, your salary has had to be suspended and frozen for the last three years. And I, I know you have two kids and the babysitter's cost is almost what it costs to send somebody to college. I got that. And I literally go to them almost with tears in my eyes trying to explain to them why they have to go on furlough while the rich get richer so that the rich can have a tax cut. Something is awfully wrong with that picture. That's why, Dean, I beg them to go into politics. This is not the speech I have written here, by the way. And so, we also, people ask the question, so Congressman, is America better off now that we have a man of color in the White House? And let me be abundantly clear, before, I was probably one of the first people to support our president. I'll never forget the president called me, oh my God, I guess it was in 2007. 
And I had known him for a while as a state legislator, and, and I'd done a fundraiser for him in Baltimore. And he said, Elijah, I, I, there's something that I want you to do for me. I, and I said, what's that? He said, I've decided that I'm running, I'm going to run. I said, well, you're in the Senate. You, you, you just got elected. I said, uh, I said uh, aren't you satisfied with that? Uh, I think I'm, he said, I'm running for president. I said, president of what? <laughs> he said, I'm running for president of the United States of America. I said, oh. He said, one of the things I want you to do is I want you to form Marylanders for Obama. And I went out, and he said, this is what I need you to do. He said, I want you to pull together as many of your friends as possible. And what I want you to do is I want you to form Marylanders for Obama. And make sure you record it. And he said something that I shall never forget that is written in the DNA of every cell of my brain. He said, because when I win, they won't believe it. So I called on my friends. I said, meet me at Enoprat Library on a certain date, 5 o'clock. We're going to form Melanus for Obama. Sure enough, at 5.30, Jonathan, nobody had showed up. Quarter up six, nobody had showed up. So I just so happened to have my tape recorder. I said, we're going to start this meeting. I said, we've gathered here this wonderful Sunday afternoon in January to form Mothers from Obama. I nominate Elijah Cummings. <laughs> to be the chairman. I, I move the nominations be closed. All those in favor, congratulations. And then went on to, of course, elect myself to the other positions, figuring I would hold them temporarily. But let me tell you something. We did that in January. By December, we had 10,000 volunteers. That's because people wanted something bigger than them, something better. They were reaching for higher heights. There was a coalition of young people, many of you probably in this room, taking off from school because you were reaching for something higher. Ladies and gentlemen, we must never lose that fervor because that is what's going to make a difference. I tell young people all the time, it's not about me. At 62 years old, I have now lived longer than I will live. But you've got something that I wish I had. If I could buy it, I'd buy it. I'd give everything but my wife and children. If I could buy some of your time, I'd buy it. Because it is so very, very important. What you have is your time, your resources, and your relationships. Come on now. And so you must go out there and make a difference. I was about to get to this point. The question becomes, when you support a president, 
and you disagree with the president, what do you do? Oh, that's a powerful question. That's a question now. Since you all, I'm going to ask it and answer it for you. I've often said that my convictions grow out of pain. They grow out of a little boy who sat in a special ed class who was told that he would never be able to read or write. It grew out of pain. It grew out of pain of seeing relatives die of cancer and not be able to get the kind of treatment that they deserved and needed. It grew out of pain. It grew out of pain of seeing young African-American males in the neighborhood where I live blown away because they can get a gun just as fast as they can get a cigarette. Grow out of pain. And out of pain, young people, comes your passion. And your passion will lead you to your purpose. Write that down. <laughs> and since we are at Harvard, I got another P for you. Pain, passion, purpose, and policy. And policy. You must help to create policy that paves the way for people to be all that they can be. So therefore, if the president wants to, as he has now proposed, and he is my friend, I love him to death, to life, but if he proposes to reduce the benefits on people who look like my mother, who have worked all their lives and given everything that they had, and they have given their blood, their sweat, and their tears, and we've got people who are saying that they, are, and they should be, that their, quote, entitlements should be cut. Although I love my brother, I must disagree. I am in agreement with the president, Dean, when he said, I will tell you what you need to hear, not necessarily what you want to hear. Because after all the dust settles, I have to look me in the face. I have to look my seniors in the face. And I have to be comfortable with my decisions. So, I am saying to you that as you go out there and you become the policymakers that you will become, stick with your principles. Stick, oh God, stick with your principles. You gotta stick with your principles. You gotta stick with your principles, and one of the reasons why you've gotta stick with your principles is because if there is no pushback from what you bring to the table, from your experiences and what you've seen, if you cannot push back, not only from your experiences and your intelligence and all that you've been through, if you cannot push back against those things that you think are maybe harmful, to the people that you are setting policy for, then what that means is that there is no pushback. Oh, no pushback. No pushback. And so then it, then it appears as if everybody agrees with the Tea Party. Hello? Hello? And so, I'm going to close. I've said too much already. 
finally, I would say to the young people, when you go into policy, oh, God. Ooh. Make sure that you figure out what your passion is. I have so many people who come to the oversight committee that I'm the ranking member of, and, they, and these people deem some of them making three, four hundred thousand dollars. And they say, Congressman, Congressman, we want to work for you. I said, You can't work for me. They said, Well, why can't we work for you? I said, Because most you're going to make here is 90. And that's on the upper scale. They said, Well, we're willing to take, we are willing to take a cut. And I asked them over and over again, why are you willing to take a cut? And, I, and I, 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 want, I want you to listen to what they say. They say, because we are doing a job and have been doing a job for years and making plenty of money, but we are not able to feed our souls. Oh, God. Write that down. <laughs> not able to feed their souls. Chris Rock's wife, who's a good friend of mine, I'll never forget one day she, she and I were talking, and she, I'd send kids to Israel and Africa, and she sends them to Africa, and so we were just talking, and I was saying, boy, you got a great program. We were comparing notes, and she said, I said, well, what, how does Chris feel about all of this? And she said, she says, you know what? I love my husband. I know you all have heard them jokes about my husband and the jokes he tells about me and all that kind of stuff. But let me, she said, she said, the reason why I love my husband so much and I would die for him is because he allows me to feed my soul. In other words, there's something that is driving her that she wants to get done and she needs somebody who is supportive of what she is doing. And when people come to me looking for jobs, a lot of them have been in their jobs for 15 or 20 years, but then they realize that something, a light comes on and they realize that they are not happy. And so I would urge you to go figure out what your passion is because, oh God, listen to this one. Your strength is in your passion. Your strength is in your passion. As I close, I, I got to close. No, seriously, I got to close. <laughs> you know, we're in this, this gun debate. The NRA is an interesting organization. Interesting. Dana, interesting. I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know how you see 20 kids blown away and not do anything at close range by a bullet that, that travels 2,000 feet in a second. I, I don't know how you do that. I don't, I don't know how you have children or grandchildren or, have, or, or if you had been a child. <laughs> I got everybody now. and not do something. So, as you probably know, a few years ago, or two years ago, almost two years ago, I had a nephew who was killed 
he was, he was, he was murdered at Old Dominion College in Norfolk. And I'll never forget getting the call where he was robbed at 5 o'clock in the morning. And they busted into his house and blew him away. And I'll never forget going to his room a few days later and seeing his blood splattered up and down the halls. Honor student, great guy, was like my son. And even before that, Dean, I had been working on gun control proposals. But now I have a piece of gun control legislation that is probably, if anything passes, it will pass. Because we have bipartisan, this is something I've been working on for years and now the time has come, I think, that it'll pass. But you know what I just, as I close on this, I, I, I want you to understand when you go out there you find your passion, and you figure out your purpose, and you're pursuing it, there's one thing that I have to caution you about. I have to do this. You've got to remember that sometimes your passion can wane. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Understand? And I, I had to start talking to myself here recently. I said, Elijah, when Christopher first died, you were very excited about gun control and trying to make sure that you address these issues. And I know that you're still excited on a scale of, of one to 10. You used to be at a 10, but now you're at an eight. And, and, and Elijah, you need, to, you need to find a way to renew your passion. So guess what I did? I called the medical examiner. Two weeks ago, I said, I want to go and observe an autopsy of somebody, a young person, who has been killed in my district with a gun. Oh, this is going to get deep. So I waited and waited, and of all days, Dean, I had to wait till they had somebody for me to see on Good Friday, on Good Friday at 7.30 in the morning, I got a call and said, Congressman, at 9 o'clock, we're going to start this autopsy. What was I trying to do? I was trying to renew my passion, trying to renew my passion because I wanted to stay sharp because I knew my power was in my, and my strength was in my passion. But if my passion began to wane, I might not go into the, my efforts with the same amount of energy. And if I began to listen to the Tea Party folk, I might get discouraged. So I wanted to have my passion at the nth degree. So I went, and there was a young man, 6'5", excellent condition been found slumped over his wheel. Apparently, some friends had executed him. And I watched that autopsy, and I was, as, I was about as close as you, I am to you, Dean. And I don't know how many of you all have ever seen an autopsy. It is not a pleasant thing to look at. And I kept looking at him, and I kept saying, he looks just like my nephew. And then I kept looking, and I... I said to myself, you know, just yesterday he was probably getting ready for a date with his girlfriend. 
And now I'm looking at a body. And, and I said to myself, as the Congress discusses uh, gun control, everybody need to do this. Everybody needs to see the bullet hole that I saw. Everybody needs to understand that there are communities like the community that I live in where you can get a, a gun faster than you can get a cigarette. Everybody needs to see that. Uh, everybody, if we are going to, if we are going, if we are going to create policy, we need to know what we're talking about. Don't cut that lady's social security off and reduce her money when you don't know what it's like for her to lose ten dollars or for the groceries to go up, or for her Medicare payments to go up. Don't stand back and act like, you know, it's okay to not do anything when you have a Sandy Hook. And if you're going to, oh God, if you're going to do that, if you're going to stand and do nothing, at least talk to the parents. At least explain to them why it is we end up doing nothing. So I leave you with this final thing. One of the things that when you become the policy makers, I beg you not to do what we do too often in Congress. In the words of my mother, who, like I said, only had an elementary school education. She said, son, don't go out there and have motion, commotion, emotion and no results. We got a lot of people that do a lot of talking. And at the end, do we have results? Ladies and gentlemen, you may not understand it now because you are so young. Some of you 22, 23 years old, but I promise you, you'll be 50 before you know it. And what I'm saying to you is you must seize the moment. Don't let anybody tell you you are not prepared to create policy. Don't let anybody tell you you're not prepared to create that book. Don't let anybody tell you that your opinion does not count. You must have confidence in your own competence. And so I will read the last part of the speech. <laughs> no, I'm letting it go. Thank you very much. Congressman, uh, if that's you at eight. Uh, 
At 10, we wouldn't have had the roof down in this building anymore. <laughs> very, very powerful, very inspiring. That's another P for you, power and the preaching. Um, as is our style, this is your opportunity to ask questions. We have microphones in the audience, one's right here, one's up there, one here, and one here. Let me just say that uh, a good question at the Kennedy School has three elements. First, you start by identifying yourself. Second, it's short and has one thought. And third, it ends with a question mark. <laughs> so with that, I see uh, someone up here. Let's start right up there. Um, hi, my hi. name is Skylar Burland, and I'm a representative from the John F. Kennedy Jr. Forum. I just want to start by saying thank you for speaking with us today. Um, and I will be asking the official Twitter question hmm. for today's forum. So the question today is, in Washington, how do you maintain your principles while working with other politicians whose principles might differ greatly from your own? You just, what you do is you keep um, pushing and talking. I, I, see, I spend a lot of time on, I realize that my voice, I have to get it out. So I spend a lot of time on MSNBC, Morning Joe, all those shows. It's a pain in the butt to do it. Because literally, to do Morning Joe, I usually have to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning, literally, and read uh, every newspaper that has any kind of decent reputation. But you constantly put your views out there. You vote the way you believe you need to vote. And, you, and, and in, the gym, in the gym, you stay in their ear, you know, wherever you find them. Uh, but again, we are facing a very difficult situation in that, as I was telling the dean a little bit earlier, we have a group called the Tea Party. In the, in the Congress, and their attitude is my way or the highway. And when you have a my way or the highway group, you got a real problem, uh, and it makes it very, very, very difficult. It makes it even difficult for Boehner, who I, I like a lot. Um, and it makes it very difficult for some of our more moderate Republicans. They believe that there are some um, moderate Republicans. And so, again, I, th I think you just keep, you, you, you vote your conscience, you keep putting your views out, and I know for a fact that, that every time I appear on CNN, um, MSNBC, and all those other stations, and, I, and I'm usually on at least three times a week on something, uh, and a few times on the Sunday shows, um, that's my way of getting my views out and, then, and expressing them on the floor of the house. But it's, again, it's very difficult in this climate that we're in. Yes? Thank you. throughout your speech that um, it's really important for a congressman to understand their constituents. But with like the horrific gerrymandering that we have in Maryland, you're representing both like the, the uh, poorest Marylanders in Baltimore as well as the richest yeah. in Howard and Baltimore counties. So I was wondering how you kind of rectify those two different backgrounds and experiences to really like do what you want to do, which is to understand all your constituents. I think that's a great question. And let me answer very quickly. I have no problem with the map in Maryland, none. And let me tell you why. It's because what the we have enough Democrats. We used to have six Democrats and two Republicans. But we have enough Democrats to have seven Democrats and one Republican. When the map was done by the governor this year, he made it seven and one. We need every vote we can get in the Congress. And that's the reason why I can justify it. Um, and, and, and by the way, we have a great, and the other reason I can justify it in Maryland, as you well know, and I've said this before in many, in many venues, we have probably one of the best delegations in the country 
in the country. Um, we've got, uh, you know, Sarbanes, uh, you know the group, and McCulsey now, head of appropriations. Um, so I feel comfortable. I feel comfortable. And then, by the way, I represent a very diverse uh, district. Uh, 40, I'd say 45% of my district is white um, and about 35% Republican. So, and what, you know, one of the things that I've found, so, oh, God, I'm so glad you answered this question. One of the things that I've noticed that is that I remember when I first started representing Howard County, which is a more affluent area, when I first got redistricted into Howard County, 10 years ago, we didn't even represent Howard County. But I'll never forget the local papers wrote an article, uh, an editorial saying he doesn't belong in Howard County. Basically, he's a black man. That's pretty much what they said. He didn't have anything in, 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 in common with those folks. Once they had a chance to hear me and to hear my passion and to realize that I respond to them and I care about all of them, Republicans or not, and I'm trying to do what's good for them, I do fine. I do fine. And I think they're relative. I mean, last time I had 78% of the vote, so 79, somewhere in that. But my point is, is that I, I, I have to also look at the national picture. You follow what I'm saying? And I need, I, gotta, I need some votes. We need some votes in the Congress to get some things done. Because right now, uh, my vote is constantly nullified. And keep in mind, I know you know what they did in these other districts throughout the, the, the country. They have basically Republican, they made the district so Republican that it's almost impossible to get, and they packed the districts in a way where we can't get Democrats. So it's kind of, so that's, that's, so I feel comfortable with it to answer your question. All right. Right over here. My name is Alice Coombs. I'm a mid-career MPA, uh, one of the more uh, senior students here. Uh, my concern is, thank you so much, this is what I needed, it was, it was the right formula for me today. I really am feeling Thank you. Um, one of the things that I, I'm dealing with now is this whole notion of workforce diversity in the field of medicine. And as you know, uh, there's a workforce commission that is unfunded, and the whole notion behind, behind racial and ethnic healthcare disparities has a lot to do with access, has a lot to do with increasing the number of underrepresented minority physicians mm -hmm. in this country. Mm -hmm. Part of the charge of that commission is to begin to address strategies to implement, specifically targeted to areas that have underrepresented minority deficits, uh, physician right. deficits in the areas. Um, what do you foresee that can be done in terms of moving the meter to make this commission funded so they can get on with the work? It's gonna be very hard. Let me tell you, one of the things that's happened, it's not just that commission, it's anything to do with the Affordable Care Act, as you probably know. Uh, the headlines yesterday in the Washington Post and the Sun and the New York Times is that uh, we we can't we uh, uh, clinics are turning away people, Medicare patients, with cancer mm -hmm. because uh, the chemotherapy, uh, you know, they cannot. It's, it's become too expensive to administer chemotherapy. I, I believe that there has been an effort. You got to remember, we had numerous votes on the Affordable Care Act to abolish it. Mm -hmm. There's still an effort. They don't say it, but what they, what's happening there is they're trying to pull the funding for it. You can have all the policy you want, but if you don't have the funding for it, right. it ain't going nowhere. And I think that that's part of the problem. There are a lot of great uh, students or, or wannabe students who want to go into medicine. I know a lot of them in my district. 
and they simply do not have the resources to go. Um, and with this sequester and, and all of these things happening on this cut, 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 what's happening is we're cutting off our future and cutting off the, you know, the types of things that you're talking about. You're right, we have got to bring more folks into medicine. The Affordable Care Act by itself, by ensuring now an additional 25 to 30 million people, tells you that. But yet still, we've got a shortage of all kinds of uh, physicians, particularly primary care physicians. So, you know, that's why we've got to keep the, keep the fight going in Congress. Um, and try, I'm trying to get the president, I, I keep reminding the president um, that, you know, when we deal with Republicans, and all due respect to all the Republicans in the room, um, but when we deal with the Republicans, the Republicans, when they start to begin to negotiate, if that wall is the far right, uh, they're about 30 miles down there. And by the time you finish negotiating, you're still on the far right. And some kind of way, that's why I say the policymakers have got to come from the other side and say, look, we need the kinds of things that you're, you're talking about. And there are core people in the Congress who really believe in what you believe in. But what I'm worried about is that they get to a point where they feel like, okay, it's okay. The norm is supposed to be us negotiating on the far right. And so you never get to the kind of stuff you're talking about. And then, and then people say, oh, God, can I just leave you with this? One of the things that, that worries me, and I know you didn't ask this, but I'm going to answer it anyway, about the sequester is that it is marching us towards a third world nation. I'm telling you, it is marching us towards a third, when you, when you got a headline in America that you're going to stop taking care of Medicare patients who need chemotherapy? Come on, this is America, we're better than that. And that's why, and that's why I say this thing about passion is so very important. We need people to rise up. And, and by the way, by the way, I don't know if y'all don't know this, but I'm telling you, bulletin coming over the wire, you may be the last line of defense. I'll be dead. I will be dead. That's why I've come to Harvard on a day that I normally would spend with my wife. I've come here because I realize that I am talking to the future. Somebody's got to stand up. And somebody's got to have that passion. But you know what? You have to have, and the reason why you all may be the last line of defense is because you are brilliant. You're brilliant and you're sensitive. And so you need to take that sensitivity with that brilliance and that compassion and keep pushing. And, and, and again, we want to get away from pe people believing that it's the norm not to have a sufficient number of minority doctors, not the norm to just throw people away when they get sick, not to throw people away because they can't go to college, you know, not giving them enough money to go to college and all that. And by the way, a lot of the people who benefited from government, now they say, uh-oh, uh-oh, uh-oh. I've arrived. Let me pull up the ladder that government helped me with and burn it. Mm. Not throw it away, burn it. Mm. So anyway. Thank you. Right over here. Hi, my, name is, my name is Dean Polk. I'm from Pascagoula, Mississippi. And so uh, you talked a lot about the Tea Party. That's the home bed there. Uh, she took my question about healthcare, but I want to talk to you or ask you, what do we do in regards to trying to bridge that gap? I work a lot in my community back home, and that's the resistance that I encounter. 
think what you have to do, you know, the, first of all, we need to concentrate on uh, what we're fighting for and not who we're fighting against. You need to write that down. <laughs> what, we're, what we're fighting for and not who we're fighting against. Um, I think we need to be very supportive of the community health centers um, because they play a very, very important role. I think that people who, like you, who are informed need to be pulling people together and finding a way to meet with the legislature and give the, le oh God, the legislature the kind of information they need to operate. Can I tell you something? A lot of times, policymakers have never taken a course in policy. <laughs> no, I'm serious about that. I guarantee you 95% of the Congress has never had one hour of policy. Let me tell you how I learned that from my wife. She runs her own think tank. She is a policy person. I never had one course of policy. Not one. A lot of the staff members no policy. Why y'all looking at me like I'm, I'm crazy? It's true. So my point is, is that a lot of times you have to help inform policymakers as to how to be effective and efficient in what they do. Duh. One of the things that I believe in very strongly is that you have got to you have got to help people be effective and efficient. Ladies and gentlemen, if you don't remember anything else I say, particularly the young folks in this room, every day when you go out there, try to figure out how you can be effective and efficient in what you do. Be, oh, God, because if you're not effective and efficient, you're usually wasting your time. You're wasting it, oh, God, and you're placed in positions to make a difference, and because you're not informed, you're wasting time. And in the time that you could be making a difference to help somebody because you're not informed, you're wasting time. And what I'm saying to you is the kinds of things that you learn from policy schools like this, you need to bring it to the Mississippi delegation so that when they go in there and talk to Haley Barber, is it Barber down there? It's uh, Bryant. Brian, I'm sorry, I get them mixed up. The Mississippi, Alabama. Anyway, they're the same. Uh, yeah, but you, they, but, 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 but you understand what I'm saying? I, I don't think you all realize how significant understanding how to create policy is. In some kind of way, you all need to be volunteering your time to some of these delegations. Said, look, this is a proposal. This is how you do it. Show them how to do it. <laughs> I know that sounds very simple, but I'm serious. Can I tell you something else? A lot, of, a lot of times you do not know what you know until you're around somebody who don't know what you know. Huh. Okay. No, I'm serious. Yes, sir. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Good day, uh, Good Congressman. Day. I really appreciate you sharing your story and your passion. Very inspiring. But my name is Liberty, and I represent Africa. And my question is, do you think justice will ever have the rule of law in America? Say that again. Do you think justice will ever have the rule of law in America? Do you think justice will ever be the foundation for what happens in America in regards to Do policy? Do I think justice will yes. prevail? Yes. 
That's a very good question. Yes, I do. But I think we have to, but listen to me, just hear me out. But I think we have to push for justice. See, see, I guess, you know, a lot of times, uh, I think we get to a point where we don't believe that we have a lot of control over what justice prevails, but we do. We've got to make sure, say for example, in the courts, we've got to make sure that we appoint, elected a president who hopefully selects proper people to be on the Supreme Court, because the Supreme Court is going more, you know, conservative every day. Um, and I could go on and on, but, but that's such a broad question. But I think that we have to be the guardians. And again, that has to do with policy. Mm. And, 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 and can I tell you something else? You just gave me another thought. This is our watch. This is our watch, you and me. We're on Earth right now. You're going to be on the Earth a lot longer than I will. It's our watch. And so we must use the tools just like a guard at a, at a, in the front of a building or whatever, he may, he may have a gun to make sure that he watches. The tools that you all, and I hate to use that example, but the tools that you all have is the knowledge, the compassion, the passion, and the experiences of your life. Okay. And because, can I tell you something, a little secret? Because what is justice to you may not be justice to somebody else. You follow me? You know, you know it, 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 it may not. You know, I live in a neighborhood, I'm almost finishing. I live in a neighborhood, I've lived, I've lived in a neighborhood I've lived in for 32 years. I want you to hear what I'm about to say. And I used to represent criminals when I practiced law. And I would say to them, why did you shoot the guy? You were robbing him, why did you shoot him? And you know what they would say? They said he shouldn't have resisted. Now, to him, in his mind, that's justice. My point is, is that we, oh, we have to define what justice is, and then we have to fight for it. One of the reasons why I became a lawyer is because I wanted to do what you just said. Um, it's, but you've got to fight for it. It's in your hands. All right. I'm sorry. Yes. Hi. Uh, my name is Shannon McAuliffe, and I'm a student here also. And my question is somewhat related. And it has to do specifically, though, with mass incarceration. Yes. And I'm wondering what ideas Congress has to address this problem. You and know, you oh, I'm so glad you, oh, I'm so glad you <laughs> asked that question. Oh, let, let me, oh, God, I'm so glad you asked that. It's a big one, I know. Oh. My, my feelings on incarceration have evolved. When I read the book, the new Jim Crow, I couldn't put it down. When they said in 1980 there were 300,000 prisoners, and now there are 2 million, many of them people of color for drug offenses that are nonviolent, sitting in prisons, rotting away, in many instances, young people being put in prisons with adults and learning how to do other kinds of crimes. I get it. 
I used to have less sympathy for people who found their way to, to become addicted to drugs. But the more I've seen, the more I realize that we have got to change some of our policies. Number one, um, with regard to these offenses, um, I think we've got to, marijuana and things of that nature, I think we've got to take a level look at it like a lot of states are. And believe me, I have never, and I can tell you, I'm not like my good friend, Brother Clinton, I've never inhaled. No, seriously, I've never, no, no, seriously, I've never used a drug. I'm, I'm afraid, I'm scared of drugs. No, 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 seriously, I am scared of drugs. Anything that can control me to that degree, I'm scared of. And I'm not afraid to say I'm scared of it. Um, so we've got to, I think we've got to look at all of those, that, the, the, the marijuana laws and all that, and I think we need to do something about those. And I think we're moving more and more towards that, as you can see in the states. Um, I, there's another thing that I've noticed, too, that happens. I remember when I first began to practice law, um, I remember in the 24 counties in, in Maryland, as my good friend knows, 24 counties. And in the Baltimore area, when I would go to East, when I went to certain areas, the white areas, they would say, uh, Congressman, aren't you going to take your client through intake? I said, what's intake? They said, you know, if they get caught with drugs, we, you know, we make sure they don't get a record. We couch them a little bit, and we let them go. They didn't even have it in Baltimore City. They got arrested. They served time in jail. So some kind of way, so there is a, a, a great imbalance there. And I think we have got to deal with, we've got to look at the drug laws. And I think we are. I think we are. And, I think, and by the way, there's another thing that's happening. Um, Bobby Scott, Congressman Bobby Scott and I have been big pushers, well, I mean, big, jeez. Um, <laughs> anyway, we've been working hard on making sure that there are alternatives to incarceration, making sure that we try to prevent and provide children with opportunities whereby they can, um, you know, be, be, be busy and, 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 and avoid the whole prison uh, pipeline. The other thing that, 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 that we're doing is trying to make sure that people stay in school and get an education. By the way, I am the, I'm the chairman of the board of a high school, and I've been the chairman of the board for seven years. And um, we have 450 students. It's called the Maritime Academy. And um, one of the things that we've been able to do is increase our graduation rates by, and by the way, this is a, the broad community, the Maritime community, coming together, supporting these kids helping them get jobs, internships, and showing them that there is a way. One of the reasons why, I, by the way, I live in the inner city for 32 years is because I want to be an example to young African-American boys and girls that there's a better way. There's a better way. So, we're gonna, that, so my point is that that's a, we're, we're, and, and, and you know what's so interesting? A lot of states are now um, lessening the penalties for marijuana and things of that nature. You know why? It's not because they feel sympathy for, the, for, for these folks. It's because it costs so much money to incarcerate them. So again, you know, I think you're going to see more of a movement towards that because you got people who want to save money, and then you got people who know that it's unfair. I think you'll have a coalition, an unusual coalition, 
that will begin to address a, a lot of that, okay? I'm afraid this will have to be the last question. Sweet. Okay. Um, I'm sorry I'm so long. Um, so my name is Brittany Brown, and I'm a graduate student studying urban planning at Tufts. And I essentially have two questions. Um, my first question is, how, how necessary and relevant is power when is, you're, is, is, what? is power when making changes? And I ask this question because um, for that person who's going to work for a policy think tank and their, their job is to work in the economic equity department and the economic equity department's idea of economic equity is diversifying the banking system. And you know that person who works as a program associate disagrees, but thinks that, okay, in order for me to really make change, I need to become the executive director. And I can't speak up as an intern and a program associate because power, I understand the complexity of power and the necessity of power. So what do you say to that person? I got it. That? I got it. That's a great question. You got, is it is the both question? Is this, yeah, that's, that's it. Let me give it to you. You listen? I'm listening. <laughs> T.D. Jakes, T.D. Jakes came to my church. He's a good friend of mine and a mentor. He came to my church about seven weeks ago, and he said something that I will sure never forget, and I want to leave it with you because this was meant just for you. He said his son came to him. His son is a singer, and his son came to him and said, Daddy, you know, I'm not sure this is where. That was, this has been longer than seven weeks ago. It's been a good while. It's been about well, almost a year now. seems like seven weeks ago, but anyway. He said, his son comes to him and says, his son is a singer, right? And his son has all this great talent, and he can sing so well, Dean, he can sing. And he goes to his father and says, father, he's about to go to the conservatory, and he says, father, I'm not sure that this is what I want, I should be doing. After all, singers may not make a lot of money, they got to find good breaks. Maybe this is not the thing I need to be doing. And his father said these words that I want to put in the DNA of every cell of your body. His father, TDJ, said, son, if it's not the thing, it's the thing that will lead you to the thing. Oh, you need to write that down. If it's not the thing, and Dean, you know what I'm talking about. I don't even know the Dean's story, but he has gone from place to place to place that led him to Harvard. Oh, God, I asked him about his job. He said, this is the greatest job he ever had. But it led him here. He didn't start at Harvard. It led him here. You got here through Stanford. It was a thing that led you to the thing. That's number one. Number two, I want you to understand life, my dear sister. I was talking to my daughter today. She is a, um, a specialist in, in public relations for a firm in Washington that specializes in uh, making sure that other countries have positive images in the United States. That's what she does. One of her clients is Columbia, South America. My daughter has gotten to a point where she said to me today, she said, Daddy, she had, we had this, the discussion. She said, Daddy, you know, I, I, I'm not feeling my passion. She said, I, 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 basically, I need to feed my soul. That's where you're going to. I said, girlfriend, I got the answer. <laughs> got it. I said, you had to go through this. You may be in a situation where you don't have the power, but it's creating the power within you, creating the skills 
so that you can go where you need to go to do what you need to do. Oh, God. That's the answer. What I'm saying is that you are young enough not to be discouraged. But look at every single stop on your life as preparing you for greater things. My first job, and I, I do close with this, my first job, my first job ever was at a country club, washing pots. Oh, I was the greatest pot washer that you could ever imagine. No, I'm serious. They would give me the pot that had the burnt spaghetti on it, and I knew that in 10 minutes they had to cook some macaroni in that pot. They'd give me my Brillo pads, and I would scrub, 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 scrub. Within seven minutes, they had their clean pot. But that led me to be to a promotion to the glass washer. Now listen to me, seriously. They said he was a great pot washer. Now we'll make him a glass washer. But then that led me to my next job. They made me a porter. When I became a porter, I met people in the club because I would not normally meet them as a pot washer or glass washer, members of the club who then helped me through college. Let me, can I tell you one other little thing to my young people, and I tell my children this. If you go out there and you do the best you can do, and you stand up for what you believe in, and you give it everything you've got, I promise you, adults, older people than you, will come along and help you. I have never seen it fail. Never. I know, I know you all, I know you all didn't expect this speech. I know y'all didn't expect this speech. I didn't either. Congressman, uh, there's only one thing you said that I don't care people in this audience quite agree with. You said they could replace you. You, you said someone, one of them could replace you. Nobody could replace you, but you could sure use some more partners. So thank you very much. Well done.